Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, as well as links to our YouTube, Stitcher, and SoundCloud accounts, visit our website at nonservium.medium. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. We appreciate all donations, big or small, and your support helps us keep this project going. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 15th episode of the show. You're in for a treat this time around because this is going to be Non-Servium's first go at a crossover episode. As you may know, individualist anarchism, mutualism, and other tendencies within left-wing market anarchist thought remain relevant in the broader anarchist milieu, mostly thanks to the work of Center for the Stateless Society. So far, they've had the unfortunate burden of being one of the only modern organizations who continue the rich anarchist tradition that promotes anti-capitalist markets, as a means by which cooperation is made coherent and desirable. As many of you may have guessed by now, I'm a fan. It's difficult for me to think of one organization that has influenced me more than C4SS, and I'm eternally grateful for the wonderful work they continue to do. One of their most recent endeavors was starting a podcast called Mutual Exchange Radio. It's a show that brings together a wide variety of guests from academics to on-the-ground activists, to center scholars, to entrepreneurs, to discuss the latest developments in philosophy and the practice of market anarchism. I've enjoyed every episode they've released so far, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing the host. Here's my interview with Zachary Woodman. Zachary Woodman is a master's student in philosophy at Western Michigan University, a market anarchist and the host of the Mutual Exchange Radio. His research interests include political philosophy, meta-ethics, philosophy of social science, and decision theory. He's particularly interested in the intersections of anarchists and liberal political theory, the legitimacy of political authority, and the practical implications of philosophical anarchism. In this interview, I hope to explore a little bit about Zachary's personal politics, his experience with C4SS and the Mutual Exchange Radio, and more. Zachary, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? Uh, It's going good. Ready for some back-to-back episodes of podcasting? (laughs) I think so. This is going to be my first attempt at a podcast crossover sort of thing, so it should be interesting. Yep, same here. So you're in Michigan. Have you been to Zingerman's, that sandwich shop? Yeah, so I used to live in Ann Arbor. I went to University of Michigan for undergrad. Uh huh. And in my opinion, Zingerman's is wildly overrated. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's good. It's a very good sandwich, but I'm not going to pay twenty dollars for a sandwich <laughs> and chips. It's just outlandishly overpriced. <laughs> no, I agree. The only reason I ask that is because apparently the owner is supposed to be some sort of anarchist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a friend who was a business MA student who did some studies on that, and he found that out. (laughs) You know, I I told Jason the other week about that, and Jason was, like, shocked, and he's like, well, I'm going to have to start. Jason Lee Bias, a previous guest of this show uh, who's now a PhD student at U of M, 
He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to start eating there more often. Last time I was there, I went with some family and I was planning on going to an info shop there. And I, I literally just bumped into this zine collection about anarchism while I'm waiting in line with family, <laughs> waiting to get sandwiches. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And yeah, sure enough, found out that this dude is an anarchist. Yeah. So that was pretty wild to find out. Yeah. I think he's some shade of an capish type thing. I'm not sure, though. I think you're right. Yeah. And apparently Obama ate there, which is not good praxis. I don't know why you'd feed a uh, murderer. <laughs> well, you know, uh, markets are about exchange and minimal exchange on minimal terms. So uh, if I owned a sandwich shop, I would also probably feed Obama. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting canceled. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the interview now if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I read your autobiographical account titled Why I'm No Longer a Christian. You and I had a pretty similar journey out of Christianity. One big difference in our past is that you embraced anarchism before rejecting Christianity. How did that happen? Yeah, so I, I think what happened was that I was sort of viewing, and I still do view religion as sort of in a different sphere than politics. So I think the reasons I became an anarchist didn't have a whole lot to do with uh, the reasons I was a Christian at that point. I think by the time I became an anarchist, I was quite a heterodox Christian to the point that most Christians probably wouldn't have wanted to call me a Christian. I went through this kick of like postmodern radical theology inspired by the likes of Jack Caputo and Paul Tillich, where I was thinking like, no, God literally died. That's what Nietzsche was on to. <laughs> and uh, I was into process theology for a bit. Uh, that means like biblical inerrancy was long out the window. Uh, I didn't believe in the omnipotence of God at that point. So at, at that point, like whether I really counted as a Christian is an open question. But I think the reasons I became an anarchist were far more, had far more to do with economics at that point than religion. In a conversation we had a while back, you told me that you considered yourself a uh, weak deontologist. Mm -hmm. What are your current philosophical convictions and how do they interact with your commitment to anarchism? I, I think the reason why I would describe myself as a weak deontologist, and by that I mean something more like what Ross had in mind, where you have prima facie duties, like this whole set of prima facie duties that might at a glance sort of work against or run up against each other. And then it, it's sort of the job of ethical theorizing and ethical practice to be able to figure out which prima facie duty applies in a situation the strongest. Um, and when we say prima facie duty, we mean like they can be overcome by radical circumstances. So this helps you get around like the classic objections to sort of a stronger version of deontology and Kant where, uh, you know, the murderer shows up to your door and asks to murder a bunch of people. Where are they? And because you have a duty not to lie, you're supposed to say yes. Um, this sort of deontology would say, well, we have a duty of beneficence that can overwhelm your prima facie duty not to lie in that instance. That's what I mean by weak deontology. I think the reason why I describe myself that way is largely out of a dissatisfaction with all the other ethical theories. So you got consequentialism. There are real and various versions of utilitarianism. The real problems with how you aggregate people's utilities in a non-arbitrary way and how you make interpersonal utility comparisons. In utility theory, that's notoriously difficult, and I think that poses problems for if you're going to say the point of ethics is just to maximize overall utility. Um, and there are more sophisticated versions of rule consequentialism that can help you get around that, but Jaeger has ethics as a social science, which is a more sophisticated version of get, to get around that. 
But at a certain level, like those views begin to collapse into some variation of weak deontology, kind of. I, I don't think that's the most intelligent criticism I could make of it. But it just it it feels to me like if you're really trying to capture sort of the way we think about how we apply ethical concepts and certain ethical intuitions we have, then you need to give more of a primary place to regulative ethical concepts like right, wrong, permitted, impermissible, duty, etc. Then you can give to evaluative concepts just like good. It it just seems more useful for thinking about and capturing what ethical discourse is like to do that. And then I have similar feelings about virtue ethics. I think one big problem I have with virtue ethics is I am kind of on board with uh, somewhat overdone, but I think largely correct uh, critiques of virtue ethics from social psychology, the so-called situational critiques that people like John Doris and Harmon have promoted, where it looks like you can't make these sort of permanent predictable regulative character attributions to people like you can't say someone is courageous after they did one courageous act because the sorts of features of a situation that cause people to act are more important than these undergirding hypothetical psychological character traits and i think that poses a real problem if your primary unit of ethical analysis and what is intrinsically value in ethics what gives us a sense of airtake value is character traits if those don't really exist then the whole project begins to look suspect and there are, you know, sophisticated ways virtue ethicists can get around there, like they can start appealing to skill. Another area where that helps is another problem I have with virtue ethics is it seems difficult to imagine how it can action guide in certain ways. Like you have these V rules that you're like, OK, what should I do in this hard situation? Well, virtue ethics tells you you should do what the virtuous person would do. And I'm like, OK, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, totally. So uh, and again, that's kind of a. A little bit of a straw man, but I, f I feel like if you're really trying to capture the way we think about ethics, we're not thinking in terms of virtuous traits a lot. We are thinking in terms of how do we apply these concepts to this situation, um, and that begins to look more and more like some sort of placing the primacy in uh, regulative concepts that various variations of deontology does. So, I mean, like, that's kind of a very quick three, two, one reason why I'm not any of the other views and why sort of by process of elimination, I'm stuck with the ontology. And there are more, there are obviously more ethical views than that. Like it could become a situationalist like Doris's where you sort of like make character traits so situation specific that they're not really character traits any longer. But that clashes with another ethical commitment I have that it, in metaethics, I'm kind of a generalist. I think you need general principles to be able to help you think through what you should do in discrete situations. And that view, it's, it's just too cognitively taxing to think, what kind of situation am I in right now and how can I structure this situation so that I do things that I want to do? And then you, that also leaves open the question of, well, how do you know what you should do in that situation? How do you know how you should restructure it? And in order to think through that, you're probably going to need to rely on some other first order normative theory other than just Doris's version of situationalism. So like it's largely just out of a dissatisfaction with the other views that I wind up where I am in first order normative theory. And there are similar dissatisfactions I have about the prima facie duty stuff, but they're not quite as concerning to me as the others, like intractability of ethical concepts and what they actually are. Ross himself was like a metaethical non-naturalist, and I'm not on board with that view. So it is weird how it plays along with the rest of my philosophical commitments. How do your philosophical commitments underpin your political convictions? Yeah, so 
what they do is they give me sort of the resources to make the political arguments I, I make. I don't view them as like foundationally following from each other. One philosophical commitment I have in epistemology is I'm an anti-foundationalist, sort of thoroughgoingly. So that can't be what they're doing. But what they are doing is they're allowing, they're making certain forms of arguments that I think are quite important to get to the political convictions I have, very intelligible. So like uh, if I'm arguing against political authority, I'm saying, look, there's a prima facie duty you have not to commit violence against each other or against other people. The state is the one who is violating that prima facie duty that requires special uh, justification or special. You need special reasons why that is okay. And so it helps make sense of how that argument gets off the ground in terms of what duties are being violated and so on. I don't think it's uh, and very similarly, we can say similar things about how I think property rights work. Prima facie duties not to steal, following from duties not to commit violence. But I don't think that it's like this fundamental commitment underneath it. One overarching commitment I do have that sort of places limitations on the sorts of political arguments I can make is that I'm a sort of pragmatist, specifically a sort of neo-pragmatist. And so that makes it hard for me to talk about the political values I have as embodying this sense. That means I'm, broadly speaking, a historicist and a naturalist. So that makes it hard for me to speak of the sort of political uh, utopia I want to aim at as good for all time and an inevitable result of the workings of history or whatever, because that's a very, very non-historicist way of approaching it and necessarily good in this very deep way. I think that part of philosophical maturity is owing up to the radical contingency of situations that we're in. So that, that means that I have a very non-romantic outlook on politics in various ways. I, a bit like how public choice theorists do political science without romance. I want to do political philosophy without romance in certain ways. I think that what we're trying to do in, in politics is we're just trying to find the right institutions, social norms, and so on that enable us to get a, get along with each other, given our very different values and very different preferences, and that that's possible and ethically desirable. This makes me a lot more pluralist than most anarchists are in various ways. Mm-hmm. I don't think that what we should be aiming at is like this very deep, you know, everyone agreeing on everything philosophically or whatever. Can you go into a little more on what type of anarchism you most identify with? I would say that I'm first and foremost an individualist anarchist. Then I would describe myself as a radical liberal in the way Jason Lee Bias describes it in a work he wrote for C4SS called The Soul of Libertarianism. And then I would say market anarchist or something in that vein. Mm-hmm. And then the last word I would use is like libertarian anarchist. I think libertarianism, unfortunately, is a term that has gotten soiled by the crazies who call themselves libertarians, like, you know, the racist hucksters and so on. So I don't like to use that term as much anymore. But in academic philosophy, it's more associated with Nozick than Stefan Molyneux. So it's OK for me to say it in that context. <laughs> liberal is even more okay to say in uh, the academic context but when i say radical liberal i'm really calling back to thinkers like thomas hodgkins uh benjamin tucker and the original levelers than i am to contemporary centrist conciliatory political movements right so that's why i think i think individualist anarchist is probably the best way to get it across on first pass and then what that unpacking what that means in terms of those other terms can be helpful 
So that means I favor sort of largely a market being the primary way that we coordinate economic goods in most cases, including replacing a lot of sort of what the minimal state stuff does with various market things. But I don't think markets can take care of everything in an anarchist society. I think there are certain sorts of voluntary, unless by market you mean the totality of all voluntary exchange, which I think some ANCAP sometimes talk that way. But I think that's not particularly helpful because that's usually not what the people who are opposed to markets mean by that. That definition is so reductionist. I mean, you might as well say everything good that happens amongst people. Yeah, it's like the inverse of that meme where Marx is like, socialism is when the government does things. Uh, The more things (laughs) the government does, the more socialist -er it is, except it's (laughs) markets is when the government isn't doing things, the less, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I get get annoyed by that. But um, by, by market, I mean something like, a common social framework of exchange using individual property ownership and cash or something like that. And I don't think you can get rid of that, contrary to what some social anarchists think. You're always going to face what the Austrians call a calculation problem or Hayekians call the knowledge problem, uh, whether you are using a state to try to plan things without monetary prices or whether you're trying to use a democratic worker cooperative or syndicate to do it. You are also going to necessarily to enact that economic plan, need to use some sort of power, and that will lead to exploitive power relationships. Like Don Lavoie argued in his great book, National Economic Planning, What is Left? Economic centralization always leads to militarization. So I I don't think you're going to be able to eliminate the market for most commodities, including some that we don't have for now, like defense and security. But I don't think the market can do everything in this anarchist world. I think you're going to need mutual aid societies to replace what welfare states do for certain sort of large collective scale things of defense, what we presently think of as national defense. Cooperatives will probably be necessary um, to serve as checks on large scale violence. And then for a lot of other sort of fine parts of our life. We wouldn't want markets for a lot of things like intimate social relations, religious commit or religious communities, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that we currently don't think of as being organized by the market. Those would still want need to continue to exist as private voluntary communities in an anarchist world. Um, at risk of beating a dead horse, what would you say is like the main difference between your type of anarchism and anarcho-capitalism? You kind of touched on it already, but honestly, I hope by now that everyone can see the difference. Yeah, but right. for anyone who hasn't dealt with your flavor of anarchism, can you please just like distinguish between your anarchism and what anarcho-capitalists believe? Yeah, I mean, the book is called Markets Not Capitalism for a Reason. <laughs> So for one thing is I think capitalism as a term is this deeply confused, deeply cursed word in certain ways. So Roderick Long has this lecture where he criticizes capitalism and socialism for that matter as an anti-concept. In particular, it's a package deal anti-concept where imagine if I came up with this word, uh, Zaxelbacks, I'll just I'll just completely steal. I'll just completely steal Roderick's example. Yeah, suppose I suppose there were Zaxelbacks, and I define this term as as a metallic sphere like the Washington Monument or something like that, right? Uh, obviously, the Washington Monument is not a metallic sphere, so that definition is quite contradictory. I've like built into the definition an extension that 
violates what the concept is. And then people will hear this term and certain linguistic subgroups might go off and uh, use the word to refer to metallic spheres and others might go off to refer to the Washington Monument. But obviously, like, this is going to create an inherent instability. So this is kind of what happened with capitalism, where we said capitalism is a freed, a completely free market like what has existed since the Industrial Revolution. It's like what has existed since the Industrial Revolution has not been a completely free market. And you see this sort of contradiction play out in both opponents of capitalism and proponents of capitalism. So like Marx has this way of both talking about the state as if it is enabling and working with corporations and then say, no, the real problem is the market entirely because of the anarchy and production and all that. And it's like if the state is the one creating the the imbalanced power relations and empowering the bourgeoisie, then why exactly do you think this anarchy of the production is wrong? Like you you can see like this plays out in Marxist thought and even non-Marxist socialist thought over and over again. And then capitalists do the same thing where they'll say, oh, no, what we have isn't a free market. It's crony capitalism or whatever. And then they'll credit capitalism, including some of the things the state does with everything that's good about the world since the Industrial Revolution, right? So they both use it in contradictory ways. What I, I'm, I'm going to just say capitalism in the present context to mean the economic system that has prevailed since, since the collapse of feudalism and mercantilism and all that. And what we've seen is a mixture of state privilege for stuff, but also various ways of economic relationships that rise out of that, that ANCAPs want to defend a lot of the time that I don't, including like strongly hierarchical corporations. Mm-hmm. Not that I think all or all firms will be complete democratic worker cooperatives in a completely free market. And that's another difference between me and ANCAPs because I strongly support sort of wildcat labor union that isn't just like a labor cartel for prices, but can serve as a check on those areas of power where they exist. A big philosophical normative difference between me and most, though not all ANCAPs, is that I'm fundamentally a relational egalitarian, where what I think we should be striving for in society, something that is intrinsically valuable in society, is conditions where individuals can relate to each other on equal terms. So the extent to which I value just distribution in society is the extent to which it enables that. I think that there's a reciprocal determination, sort of, not unpacked exactly. I'm sounding exactly like Roderick Long right now, sorry. It's okay. Um, I think that there, there is some sort of interesting relationship between a presumption against violence, like so, to put it in Rossian terms, a prima facie duty not to commit violence and a prima facie duty to promote um, uh, relational egalitarian considerations. And the what it means to do both, I think, needs to be unpacked with both in view. Roderick wants to unpack this in terms of unity of virtue. Um, he said that on the episode of uh, Mutual Exchange Radio I had with him. And I'm hesitant to unpack it in those terms. But I think those are the, the key differences. Is I have a deeper, thicker set of ethical concerns motivating my political project than most ANCAPs do. Most ANCAPs are just like, well, the market maximizes utility, so we should just have markets and everything, like David Friedman. Or they think something like, all I care about is any violent coercion. And then they sort of have that narrow-minded, almost Procrustean focus, uh, and they use that to justify a lot of bad things under currently existing economic relationships, like uh, vast disparities of wealth, even where those vast disparities of wealth can be critiqued on genuinely libertarian grounds because they're the result of slavery or some past state exploitation or something like that. Whereas I'm interested in critiquing those things, and I have a much, much more broadly, genuinely leftist set of concerns animating my uh, political view. 
how would you respond to the critique of market anarchism that Nozick made, which is that such a society would naturally and inevitably devolve into monopolies and states all over again? Yeah. So this is, I think, one of the best criticisms of market anarchism out there. I don't think Nozick did it justice exactly in Anarchy, State, and Utopia. He kind of hand-waved his way into saying, well, that's how we get out of the state of nature in, I think, chapter one or two of Anarchy, State, and Utopia. This argument was really sort of well-cemented by Tyler Cowen, or a version of it, in an article he wrote called The Laws of Public Good, I believe. But Brian Kaplan had, had a nice response to that. Uh, I feel like it was in an article he wrote called Networks Law and the Paradox of Cooperation, uh, responding to Cowan's Laws of Public Good. So basically, Cowan's version of this argument is that uh, a market for defense will look a lot like a network industry. Now, a network industry is an industry where sort of the competitors need to cooperate to deliver the service that they're delivering. Think about like banks. Banks have to trade with each other or exchange with each other through clearinghouses and such in order to be able to take notes from each other and so on. Think about credit cards. All firms that take Visa need to cooperate with each other in certain ways. Visa and MasterCard need to cooperate with each other on credit scores and stuff like that. And the worry is that this could apply to like the market for defense in a market anarchist context, because in order to enforce contracts and stuff like that, the firms are going to have to work with each other continually in courts and stuff like that through the polycentric defense courts in order to just operate. And the worry is that this will tend to lead towards monopolization or some sort of cartel because these spheres of cooperation enable a sort of space where a cartel can open up, where collusion can open up. And the worry is that will eventually lead to monopolization of the sort Nozick had in mind in the Immaculate Conception of the State, an anarchy state and utopia. So I think there are a number of things about that that undermine the claim to it will inevitably collapse in this state. Inevitability is a bit too strong, I think. And also, by the way, one last thing to note about that is Cowan's version of the critique is a bit stronger because Cowan thinks that a market that will emerge or a state that would emerge in this way would likely be very strongly authoritarian, like kind of an Orwellian nightmare state with a corporate uh, skin on it. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, whereas Nozick seems to think that his ideal immaculate, his ideal version of a minarchist state will just emerge out of uh, the system of contracts and such is a spontaneous order. And that seems a bit Panglossianly optimistic to me. So Cowan's is both is both a more economically nuanced and interesting critique version of the critique, and it's more biting in certain ways. Because if Nozick's right in a minarchist state would evolve out of it, I'd be like, so what? That sounds better than the state that exists now. I mean, I, I would I would want very strong checks on it in various ways in the same way I would want checks on hierarchical firms in an anarchist world. Uh, but that sounds sounds like the worst case for anarchism is that we wind up where we are now. Um, sounds like it's worth trying. Whereas for Cowan, it sounds like we wind up in a much worse space. Anyway, so Kaplan has a good response to Cowan on this, where, look, just because something's a networking industry does not mean it is immediately going to collapse into a monopoly, right? There are a number of features Kaplan talks about that can determine the extent to which a network industry is likely to centralize. And that includes things like degree of interrelatedness, as he says, between firms. How often do firms have to interact with each other is essentially the idea here. Cowan's idea is one of the things that leads to firms to cooperate is that they're in repeat games through the discipline of constant dealing. So they must be interacting a lot. 
And Kaplan points out, like, look, if all these banks are doing are going after crimes with victims, not victimless crimes, most of those are highly localized and highly dispersed and investigating them is not that big a deal. So, like, firms don't always have to work with each other, especially when if one of their clients is the aggressor and one of their clients is the victim to solve like theft and murder in every instance. Another thing is, so if they are interacting with each other a lot on small transactions, then there are lots of transaction costs and that creates an incentive for them to sort of centralize in various ways. But if their deals are rare, but rather large, then bilateral contracts will work better than them coalescing into this uh, cartel-like network. Again, this is all from Brian Kaplan. Uh, None of these thoughts are original to me. The idea here is that defense firms are less lumpy because each crime is going to be different and the network's transaction costs would be lower if firms worked it out internally rather than constantly trying to fight with each other is the idea here. Constantly trying to interact with each other in this cartel situation. So the idea here is that instead of firms sort of like going in cahoots with each other, they form this sort of bilateral contract through the polycentric courts that in situations very similar to this in the future, we will do that. We will proceed this way that has lower transaction costs and needing to like work with each other. And there are a number of other things that he talks about that present uh, network firms from in defense from coalescing into one. But I think it's far from inevitable. I mean, all this is speculative because obviously we've never had a market Well, we have had variations of market anarchist things, but we've never had it on the scale that in scope that people like me are talking about. A lot of that is speculative and unsure, but it it seems far from obvious to me that it's inevitable that it will coalesce into monopoly. Let's move on to a critique that most social anarchists make or any anarchist who is uh, hostile to markets make often. And that is, why do markets matter at all? Isn't mutual aid sufficient in meeting everyone's needs? Well, yeah. So there are are a number of reasons why markets matter. First of all, people should have the freedom to form into markets because in order to prevent a market, in order to prevent things like market exchange from emerging, you're going to have to use some sort of violence or hierarchical domination to stop it. So if you are in a social anarchist utopia and there is someone from one cooperative, let's say, and someone from another cooperative, and they want to trade what they have in order to stop them. First of all, what they have there is care is careful because it's always unclear how property rights work in these cooperatives. Well, let's suppose we allow them to have personal possession of some good uh, that isn't land or something like that, just so we can make this clear. In order to stop them from trading what they have, and I don't just mean barter exchange here, there, there might be multiple people in the party and they might be agreeing to use a medium of exchange that begins to look a lot like money. Maybe it could be shells or whatever. And these things did emerge even in pre-capitalist societies quite quickly. You're going in order to stop that, you're going to need to introduce some violent power relation. So markets are probably going to inevitably evolve to meet people's needs. And another thing is that uh, I think there are certain features of duties we have that do include things like property rights. They're not quite as robust and strong as libertarians of a traditional right wing sort like to make them sound. They rely more on something like occupancy and use. But of course, what counts as use should be thought of as quite broad. And in order to respect people's right to do what they want with their actions and with 
the physical things that result from their actions, you're going to have to enable something like market transaction. Another uh, reason to care about it is that there are things that you you're going to want. Any political philosophy is going to want that are only deliverable through markets. This goes back to the point about um, uh, economic calculation that economists have made for a while. In a sufficiently complicated society, you're going to need market prices in order to enable coordination between individuals. No single committee, syndicate, blah, 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 is going to be able to make those decisions in an intelligent manner. This is the Hayekian knowledge point. And it's not just that it's hard to do the math or something like that. It's that the type of knowledge necessary for economic production of various goods that we want is necessarily dispersed, oftentimes implicit, not translatable. So you're just going to need something like a market in order to meet those needs. Mutual aid is great. It can take care of a lot, but it can't make these fine-grained decisions about production and such that you need in societies. I have been talking about centralization as if I am arguing with some more traditional socialist here. And a lot of social anarchists want to resist the phrasing of centralization um, because they think that like these cooperatives or community communes should be small and dispersed and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that begins to look like decentralization. But like at that point, what I mean by centralization is sort of centralization, not of institutions over a geographic area into one body, but centralization of decision making away from the level of individuals and towards the levels of community. Um, and I think that social anarchism is still guilty of that. If you want to read a good account about how this uh, debate between market anarchists and individualists or in social anarchists goes on uh, economic calculation, C4SS is currently organizing a uh, mutual exchange on it. And I think one work that I would recommend that really helped me think about it is this paper called Expanding the Anarchist Range by uh, David Prechico. Anyway. So recently on, on the podcast, we've been discussing themes surrounding libertarian municipalism, new municipalist movements, and other related topics. Mm -hmm. And I fear that libertarian municipalism, at its worst, runs the risk of limiting the individual to homo politicus. Like it sort of limits you to one mode of interacting with others in a meaningful way. And that's not my only issue with it, but for the sake of this question, I'll sort of leave it at that. A similar critique could be applied to market anarchism, only that the concern is this system limits the individual and all their uniqueness to homo economicus. How would you respond to that? So it's like valorizing the city or the municipal community meeting with a level of intrinsic value and centrality to organize political life that can stomp out other ways of being that might be valuable. Yeah, exactly. Or it at least runs the risk of that. And hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm strawmanning them. But again, a, a similar critique has been made of market anarchism only, only in a slightly different way. So how are markets not going to be all-encompassing and limit the individual in a similar way? There are variations of market anarchism where they want markets and everything where that there's a level of truth to that. But the variation that I would want would allow for robust systems of uh, social cooperation in various spheres of our life outside of the market. 
markets don't really necessarily dominate every feature of our life, even under capitalism, where the state has incentive to like force us into being like labor commodities in certain ways uh, to serve the corporate interests that be. So like I, I have a level of optimism about the robustness of forms of social engagement that exist in our private lives, even in the face of a completely free market. Another point I would I would make on this is that engaging in markets, there's this idea that some critics of markets have, both anarchisty and not, that markets sort of like transform you into this caricature that you see in economics textbooks. And that's not obvious. I know in his book, Markets Without Limits, with was that with Peter Jaworski, Jason Brennan and Jaworski? I, I feel like it is. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. But uh, he points to number to a bit of sociological research, finding that when markets start to pervade in societies that previously didn't have them, levels of social cooperation and trust went up. So it's not like markets turn you into this antisocial individual Wolf of Wall Street type type person. It's not obvious that that's necessarily how they operate. In fact, what they can do is they can open you up to other forms of social engagement. They create new spheres of social engagement in various important ways. I think Virgil Store has some case studies on uh, the rise of markets in Jamaica, where he's from, making this point. I mean, like, think about it. You become friends in various ways with the owner of the small business in your town. It becomes a place where you meet up in a coffee shop for example, a nexus of cash exchange is a place where you can meet up and meet new people and your friendships aren't market utility stuff, right? It's just this new way of socially interacting with people. And also like there's evidence that markets can help destabilize power hierarchies in various important ways. Like Steve Horwitz has a book called Hayek's Modern Family recounting how markets enable the rise of gay rights and feminism in various ways by divorcing economic prod production from the household um, so that now the gender division of labor no, no longer made any sense and that enabled new ways of non-market uh, interaction that were more egalitarian and less less vicious. So I, I'm both optimistic about the capacity of individuals and various social spheres not to be tainted by markets. And I don't think markets are that tainting in the first place. I think they enable new forms of social cooperation and engagement that do not reduce to market exchange themselves and are morally beneficial in various ways. In a previous episode with Emmy Bavinzi, we discussed some semantical problems with democracy. You wrote in an article making a distinction between four senses in which the term democracy can be used. So can you quickly explain each of them? One meaning is that it's trivially thrown around as an empty term of political praise in politics. So partisan A sees that partisan B does something they don't like. They say, that's anti-democratic. Partisan A promotes one of their policies that they like. Isn't this more democratic? Isn't this great? And de democracy, yay, right? Kind of just like a boo-yay expression. I don't think that's a very helpful way of using it, but I think it's worth noting that that's a way it sometimes gets used. Another one is just sort of as a way of decision-making, decision-making procedure. Basically, it just means something that means majority rule with certain protections. So any political system that where majority rule is one of the primary ways of making decisions. That could describe everything from Athens to modern America to what have you. 
some people use this as a term of abuse to say things like, oh, America is a democracy, not a republic, in various not very interesting ways, where they seem to think that all democracy refers to is a system where any and every decision is determined by majority rule. Of course, that doesn't apply to any real political system. I don't want to get too much into the semantics of that debate, but you can see how it's being used in that way there. Um, another one is that democracy is sometimes – this is probably the sense that most political scientists use it. Use sort of as a generic term for the systems of government that have pervaded in the Western world since World War II. So parliamentary systems, federal republics like the US, you get the picture. And then there's another way that it's used. It's used this way by pragmatists like John Dewey and also by a lot of political theorists as broadly speaking sort of an ethic to describe liberal values that we care about. And in a way, this kind of connects with the first usage, but it's more intellectually interesting than that. So people will use democratic to describe any expansion in liberal rights or uh, minority rights even. They will use democracy to describe basically any voluntary, mature political participation or political engagement with each other on equal terms. Dewey seemed to use it as something like that. So was that helpful? <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's going to set us up perfectly for the next few questions I have for you. Can you expand on the last definition that you gave? And do you think it's a coherent, functional definition of democracy? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a coherent functional definition of democracy because it gets confused with the other senses in various ways. I did write this piece once called The Impossible Trinity of Democracy, where I argued there's sort of three things we want out of democratic government. One is liberal values or something like that. One is uh, respect for majority rule. And one is respect for the processes or institutions of it. And I argued you can at best get two out of any of those three for various reasons. So I don't think it's the best functional definition of it. What I do think is that it's a term that is out in the ether, and I don't want to just fight about the semantics of democracies, especially when I'm engaging with someone like John Dewey or describing his work, who very often does use it that way. Um, I'm not going to be interested in saying, well, that's not democracy. That's just your liberal ethic or something like that. I don't think that's very helpful. It's worth, it's worth talking, engaging with people who use it that way. And using your majoritarian definition of democracy, do you think it is in any way compatible or desirable with your vision of a free society? Yeah, so not fully. I mean, I'm an anarchist, so I don't really think that uh, majority rule should be making central decisions. But I think in certain spheres of social engagement, like within a firm, within a workplace, where the decision isn't necessarily about everyone's sort of agreeing to the procedure explicitly. Uh, the decision isn't including people who aren't agreeing with it. It's not for the entire society. And where people have the incentive to make the decision in an informed and rational manner because it matters to them. So like in a small firm, for an example, this happens sometimes. Uh, I think it can be compatible and oftentimes is better than alternative ways of decision making. Okay, fair enough. What's wrong with actually existing political democracy as we've come to experience it in places such as the United States? Yeah, so I think the biggest critique of democracy, scholars like Jason Brennan, Elias Holman, and Brian Kaplan have really been uh, handing this one home, and then democratic theorists like Aiken and Bartels have been absorbing some of these critiques and modifying their 
conception of democracy in various important ways. The biggest critique is that in existing democracies, there are various features of it that encourage forms of political engagement that undermine the institutions of democracy, the state, for example, to make good decisions and to respect people's rights. So what what we see is that two effects in public choice economics. One is rational ignorance. Um, this goes back to uh, Tulloch and Buchanan. And one is rational irrationality. This is one of Brian Kaplan's theories, where if you think about it, the only real political engagement that is directly that most people feel they have the ability to do in democracy is voting or something like that. There's obviously more than that you can write and call your congressman, but those have limited effect as efficacy. Let's just focus on voting for simplicity for sake right now. Most people sort of implicitly realize that the probability of their vote affecting the outcome of the election is quite low, right? I think the most optimistic studies are like it's one in 10 million. So you might as well win the lottery. That's if you live in a swing state, for an example, in a presidential election. Um, they get a little higher for more localized elections, but it's still exceedingly low. And with gerrymandering for your like congressional races, it's even lower because of the demographic compositional makeup of your districts, depending on the district you're in, of course. So with that in mind, that means the stakes of the vote, the stakes of political engagement are quite low for the individuals involved, right? And then even if their vote does make a difference, it's even smaller whether their vote is making a difference in public policy in a way that matters for their life. So the politician might get in office and go against what he said he was going to do in campaign and the voter has no control over that. Yeah. Or the politician might go in office and discover that he or she has no ability to enact the changes they promised um, because of other institutional things like congressional gridlock or courts, what have you. So they recognize that the probability that their vote is going to make an actual material difference in their life is next to nothing, right? That means that the expected marginal benefit of their political participation is near zero, but it's quite costly to make political decisions in an informed and rational manner. You know, society is notoriously complicated. You have to read a million white papers to know whether the policies you're supporting are good policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the result is that people are rationally ignorant. They have absolutely no clue what they're talking about, about politics. Just read a Yahoo News comments section if you doubt this. Or you, you can look at a wide variety of polls that show things like in the 2000 election, voters performed worse than random on the question, who's more conservative, Bush or Gore? Right. So it, you can see how this has that effect. But the more pernicious effect than rational ignorance is, I think, rational irrationality. This is Brian Kaplan's point where now there is a rational incentive for people to engage in ways of political action and thinking that are epistemically irrational. So it's instrumentally rational for them to be epistemically irrational. Right. So that means to use an example from Jason Brennan. If there's a train flying towards me, um, am I going to entertain the irrational thought that that train was fake news put there by Russia and it's a conspiracy that doesn't actually exist? No, because if I'm wrong, I'm going to die, right? <laughs> but if I'm trying to decide whether I'm – if there's a piece of information that conflicts with one of my sort of epistemic or one of my ideological priors that will affect how I'm going to vote, given that my vote has no bearing on my actual life, 
am I going to entertain the thought that that piece of information is fake news put there by Russian spies or whatever? <laughs> Probably. Uh, and that's, in fact, what we see people doing. But this also means that there are various ways of irrational engagement that feel good and that we normally don't have incentive to engage in because the cost of engaging in them are high. But in politics, all of a sudden, we feel like we can. And in fact, we do. So think about tribalism in this very guttural way. There's various psychological studies showing that just adopting a group identity is enough to enact this sense of us versus them and this desire to make our side win and, more importantly, the other side lose. So Ezra Klein has been promoting this work by this one psychologist from the 70s named Henry Tajfil. Ezra Klein has been promoting this a lot in his book on political polarization, where he did a number of very minimal experiments with a group of boys. He had actually pre-selected the boys into two groups completely randomly. Then he made these boys come in to do this fake experiment where they had to guess the number of dots on a wall or something. And then he told the boys that they were put into groups based on whether they over or underestimated the dots. Then he had them play a bunch of sort of games with each other. And he discovered that they were willing to take losses for their group just to punish the other group. So this completely arbitrary situation where groups are drawn randomly. And the reason the groups are drawn is a lie <laughs> is enough to induce this sense of tribal engagement. And there's various evolutionary psychology reasons why we're hardwired to this. You know, when we were in primitive societies, we benefited based off of our in-group uh, behavior and such. Thankfully, for a lot of our lives, what we have is we have incentives to overcome that tribal bias because it's costly to do it. So think about in market exchange. Some of the classic reasons why it's difficult for discrimination to persist in markets is that it's costly for individuals to do. And that's oversold, and we can get into the complicated discussion of economics on that, but the point stands. Whereas in politics, there is no such incentive right now because the stakes for individuals are so low, so they might as well just have fun and rejoicing in their motivated tribal, tribalist reasoning since there's no cost to it. And so that leads to this level of intense political polarization that we're seeing recently that I think has always existed in democracies, but has worsened for various uh, historical reasons recently. It results in awful policies that democracies enact. So Kaplan catalogs a series of irrational biases voters have that result in various bad policies. Um, and it results in using the state to enforce systemic levels of discrimination in various ways, because um, now the majority is demanding that politicians enact discrimination. And while the state isn't always responsive to the idea of majority will, and I think the majority idea of majority will is mostly nonsense, it does have this trickle down effect in terms of the types of policies that are enacted. So I, it leads to true violation of rights. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why historically there's been this uncomfortable relationship between advocates of individual rights and democracy because people know how mob rule can work. All right. Well, switching gears a bit, I loved your article you wrote. Uh, yeah, it's titled Search of a Firmer Cosmopolitan Solidarity, the Need for a Sentimentalist Case for Open Borders. Why would you write it and what's it all about? Yeah, so this article came out of a number of things that I had been writing and discussions that I had been having about open borders and about advocates for refugee rights and immigrant rights. And it became more and more 
apparent to me as I was engaging in these discussions that a lot of what was doing the work here was not false beliefs about what immigrants are like, like whether they're going to cost a bunch of money in the welfare state or whether they're going to commit crime or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was just this emotional sense of tribal otherness to the immigrants, right? So even after I, I would talk to someone who was deeply skeptical of immigration on either the right or left, and I would point to all the good economic evidence showing that immigrants are quite good for economies, that they don't cost jobs, that most of the statements about wages are overblown. Um, I did an interview with Fabio Rojas, a sociologist at Indiana on Mutual Exchange Radio, where we went through sort of the stock argument objections to open borders. And like I would go through all those arguments and it would get more and more clear as I was going through it that those weren't really the reasons why people were so skeptical of immigration. It was just this this sense that those people are not us. Those people are not my responsibility. I don't want to worry about them. I have my own problems, right? And I, I don't want to be unfair and like act like there's no intelligent criticisms of, of open immigration or whatever, but in popular discourse, that seemed to be seems to be the way it goes. So that got me more interested in this question about how do you expand people's sensibilities of who they count as morally important, Mm -hmm. who they count as worthy of moral consideration. Because like, again, the type of immigration policies that I'm talking about are not are not like they need to go out of their way to make sure the immigrants are coming into their house or whatever and personally support it. I'm just saying yeah. you should support policies that make it so that the state is not in the immigrant's way, right? Yeah. So it's not even like I'm asking for them to do anything. I'm just asking them for them to support other people getting out of the way. So, uh, and part of this goes back to some political science research I was doing at the time showing that, you know, support for Trump immigration was one of the biggest predictors of it. And showing that there's a lot of political science research, you know, there's this debate between what is it, racial anxiety and uh, and economic or economic anxiety and racial animus or demographic anxiety, I think is the nice term they put on it um, for what was motivating support for Trump. And it became more and more clear to me that it was this sense of in-group, out-group and this lack of lack of empathetic concern or fellow feeling with people who weren't part of the national in-group. Right. Yeah that was motivating it. And so that that got me interested in sentimentalist tradition and ethics. And I think in that article, I'm drawing heavily off of Rory, a paper he wrote called uh, Human Human Rights, Rationality, and Sentimentality. It's funny, I'm actually in a grad seminar on fellow feeling, and we read that last week for that, this class. But basically what he's arguing there is what does the work to expand human rights generally throughout history, not just immigration now. He's talking quite broadly about human rights culture is this sense of ethical belonging that has come out of World War II. What has done the work to expand it is not like Kantian arguments about what rational duties people have to each other or arguments about what counts as a morally relevant feature. What what convinces the racist not to be racist is not you say, well, race is morally irrelevant in comparison to the shared faculty of rationality that you share. What convinces them is the sort of long, sad, sentimental story that begins with, because this is what it would be like to be that person in this world. This is what it would be like to lose your child. This is blah, 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 blah. The sense of human imaginative projection and empathy. 
And I think what I was doing in that article was I was trying to get open borders advocates to realize that for all the great arguments we make, it does a lot of good. But what's actually going to get most people over the hump is if they are able to feel like the people who are suffering as a result of these immigration policies is their own type of suffering, the sense of empathetic concern. One thing that struck me is one of the things that motivated opposition to Trump's immigration policies the strongest were not like white papers on the bad effects of family separation, but like pictures of these children in cages, right? The visceral sort of sentimental feeling of this is what it's like to suffer in that way. It was like narrative descriptions of what it was like to be in the icebox mm-hmm. that did that work, not Brian Kaplan's graphic novel with all these facts and open borders, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. But I think that we need a plurality of approaches here. And one of the stronger ones that we need is to take the lessons that someone like David Hume told about how moral sense comes from sentiment and passion and not really from rationality to heart and begin to engage in that way. So I think stories like Persepolis about an Iranian immigrant who went to France during the revolution do that work at least as well as a philosophical treatise on open borders. I don't have a comparative advantage in that. I'm not a very sentimental, warm, gushy person. But but I, I think I was trying to sort of call attention to the need for that project. Are welfare costs a good argument against open borders? Absolutely not. I wrote I wrote an article on this a number of years ago. Some of the information might be dated, but most of the studies show that immigrants are not fiscal costs for the most part. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, like in the United States, at least, most of our welfare programs are targeted at the elderly and at single women with families. Most of the immigrants are young working age men. So they're not the type of people who qualify for welfare programs in the first place. Second of all, we do have legal restrictions on who can, in the United States, I keep saying this use of we, but in the United States, (laughs) there are laws about who can get welfare. And that does not include, that does not include illegal immigrants. This like right-wing narrative that illegal immigrants are these massive welfare costs just isn't true because they can't even get it in the first place. Even if you think they're somehow illegally working through the system, uh, again, most of the programs aren't even targeted at that demographic in the first place. Second of all, you need to take into account the dynamic macroeconomic effects of immigration on both revenue and cost. So there's this way that right-wingers sometimes, especially like scholars at the Heritage Foundation, sometimes talk about immigration where they act like all that happens is that they get welfare payments, but also what happens is they enter the country, they work, they contribute to economic productivity. That helps expand the the tax base. Um, And they also do things like pay taxes themselves. So by the time you get all that into account, it turns out that immigrants are often almost to the point that they're not costing anything in terms of fiscal cost, but also they might be even a net fiscal gain in terms of the gains in uh, revenue. And there are a number of studies I cited in that. uh, I can't reproduce the numbers off the top of my head, but that is what the consensus of the literature I've looked into on it is. One more point on that. I find it very hilarious when like right libertarians make that argument, and it usually gives away that they're not actually libertarians, that conservatives masquerading as libertarians. I find it really hilarious when they make that, give that argument, given that they should want the welfare state to collapse because they're opposed to it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I think Milton Friedman's original point was that this is actually a good reason for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
All right. On a similar note, you point out in one of your articles that one of the more powerful arguments against looser immigration laws are the cultural costs associated with it. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. So uh, there's a sense of Burkean conservatism that is skeptical of immigration, um, where they are skeptical of sort of social change as such, because you cannot predict what happens when social change gets undermined or when social changes occur. So when traditional ways are getting sort of written out through the dynamic effects of society or through attempts to deliberately change it, like the revolution or whatever was Burke's biggest concern, it will have knock-on effects that will be impossible to predict. And there's also this sense in this worldview of loss from change so like there's something intrinsically value about continuity between people or between people intergenerationally or whatever that's sort of the conservative mindset and i think this is motivating a lot of skepticism towards immigration and you don't just see it on the right you also see it in certain spheres on on the left not necessarily applied like national migration policy but in terms of like who's moving to the city sometimes they act this way like our neighborhood is changing both NIMBYs and uh, people who sometimes are strongly opposed to gentrification talk this way. And I think what I was going for in that article was I was arguing, first of all, that culture just does naturally change as a result of individual free choices, not just as a result of people entering the society, but it does change. It's not like the static thing that has always stood there since time memorial that people have possession of like an intellectual property patent for a group, right? It's just this sort of amorphous, uh, spontaneous order that results from the actions of individuals dispersed throughout society. Actions, beliefs, customs, emotions, blah, blah, blah. So this attempt to like try to maintain the sense of cultural homeostasis is a chimera in various ways. The other point I made is that we should be open to both the possibility that cultural change harms us, but also that there are different cultural practices out there that will lead to people being better off who don't have those cultural practices. This is a sense of like cosmopolitanism that I have. I feel like my life was deeply enriched by the importation of various cultural products from Japan. I'm a huge weeb. I feel like it was deeply enriched by um, looking at cultures in France. Like I, I referenced Persepolis, which was a French graphic novel and movie earlier. I feel like my culinary habits are deeply enriched, both in terms of like the nutritional value I get out of food, but also in terms of like my enjoyment of it by eating cuisines from all over the world, like, you know, Ethiopian food, a much better restaurant than Zimmerman's in uh, Ann Arbor is the Ethiopian restaurant, the Blue Nile. If you just like look around, all of our lives are enriched by cultural sharing. And the way we can discover these new cultural products, I analogize it to the way entrepreneurs work in a market. They experiment, they try a new thing, they share a new thing, idea, and then that enables methods of production or whatever in a market to improve. Well, why don't we think of the sort of cultural sharing that comes from immigration, from refugees, from what have you, as a sort of cultural entrepreneurship, a sort of way of testing current cultural practices and of experimenting with new ones that can enable uh, the advance and pro- the advance of new cultural habits and customs that enrich all our lives. So anarchists obviously oppose nationalism. One interesting case study is Bakunin, who came out of sort of nationalist movements. Mm -hmm. He made a distinction between 
nationality and nationalism. He saw nationality as like a natural social fact. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he later opposed nationalism. But do you think that it's useful to distinguish between nationality and nationalism? Or is Bakunin just simply off base in defining nationality in that way? Yeah, so I don't know Bakunin that well on this point. So I, I'm going to put on Kamehameha Bakunin particularly. But one thing that comes to mind when I hear people use that sort of distinction is they act as if nationality, in the sense of a national identity, is a natural kind. And that's a philosopher's term of art for something like a rock or a tree or something like that. Something that just exists naturally, independently of any actions. This is not controversial between national, anti-nationalists and pro-nationalists in the modern sort of philosophical literature on nationalism, but that's just not right. Um, national cultures are a result of human engagement and are in certain sense invented and imagined through political engagement, but also through cultural discourse and so on. It's not like the people of France were a thing before someone came along and started talking about us as the people of France. They thought of themselves as Gauls and separated in all these various ways. Um, similarly with America, American nationality is clearly not a natural kind. There's not even a similar <laughs> cultural homogeneity. And there's a sense in which thinking of national cultures as a common shared natural fact is inherently unstable. Like the social distances of me sitting here in Michigan, a white upper middle class-ish 20-something-year-old city in Michigan, and someone of a similar sort of background in Ontario, just over the Canadian border maybe, is probably a lot less than the distance between me and an inner city Latino person in LA. And that person probably has a lot more social commonality with someone over the border in Baja, California or something like that than they do with me. So it's like culture isn't defined by national borders. It's not defined by any sort of natural kind that arises out of like biological mechanisms or weird racist stuff like that. It's instead to quote Benedict Anderson, an imagined community that is built up as a result of sort of intentional attempts by people to imagine a national world or a national group. And so in that sense, I think it is it is a mistake to distinguish between nationality and nationalism because the project of constructing a nationality involves a nationalist impulse, sort of, I think. And also note that that means that constructing a national identity is in some sense optional, right? Because it's not a natural kind. So then we have to think, well, is constructing a national identity something that is productive, that is good, that we should want to do? Does it have good effects? And I think overwhelmingly, for the most part, the answer to that question is no. A lot of anarchists see nations as necessarily implying a state. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the concept of a nation necessarily implies a state? So there are variations of nationalism that are sub-statist and transcultural. Chaim Gans is a, is a philosopher who promotes that form of nationalism. So I, I don't think the idea of nationality necessarily entails a state. This is not me defending national anarchists, by the way, who are essentially just Nazis who want hyper-localized control. And I think the sort of thing that they're promoting is very state-like. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like this fetishization of cultural homogeneity and locality that I think is deeply hierarchical, deeply problematic, mm -hmm. uh, obviously very racist. And that's where the national anarchists are going wrong. But I do want to say that the idea of a national identity does not necessarily need to be tethered to a state. Mm-hmm. 
I think it usually in practice winds up being that way because national identities are the sorts of things that states can readily co-opt for their purposes. And that's one of the reasons I am skeptical of them. But it's not entirely incoherent to have a sub-statist or interstatist notion of nationality. I think uh, Judaism is in many is in many ways in practice sort of that way. Um, there are anti-Zionist Jews. There was a Jewish identity before the existence of the Israeli state. So I, I don't want to write off that idea. And um, what are your thoughts on indigenous nationalism? This is a hard question because it's one that I've been intending to write on for a long time and I'm still formulating my thoughts on. So consider this sort of provisional. My first impulse is to say that there's something that gets called indigenous nationalism that it's not entirely clear whether it qualifies as a sort of nationalism to me. In a sense, certain indigenous nationalist movements are often sort of like the people who are indigenous activists think of it as pride in their indigenous heritage and so on and so forth. And in a sense, that can be very good for many of the same reasons why, like the gay pride movement, needing to rely on that sort of rhetoric to coalesce a movement around ending oppression of gay people. And I think that uh, indigenous rights activists need something like that. Similar things can be said about the black rights movement. You need to sort of cultivate a sense of community among the oppressed to motivate a movement to fight the oppression. So if that's all that it's trying to accomplish, it's trying to get a sense of recognition for the mass mistreatment of indigenous peoples mm -hmm. um, and correct for that, then I see no reason to criticize it. In that sense, it might be called nationalism, but it's clearly substatist and it's clearly subcultural or substatist or interstatist and clearly focused on the cultural elements of it. I'm not sure that that's what all indigenous nationalists are like. Um, it's not a movement I swim in, so I might be painting with too broad a brush, but it seems like a lot of them do want an independent state that is controlled in some sense owned by indigenous national nationalists. And that's when I get off board. Um, both out of opposition to all states, but also because I think that nationality, when it gets tethered to, especially when it gets tethered to states, um, a sense of state ownership in particular, like the, the national group owns the state, it lends itself to sort of alienation for people who have to exist under that state who don't belong to that group. Um, that is deeply unjust. It results in a sort of fetishization of the state's authority that can make it so that people are insufficiently critical of the injustice that state permits. To be clear, I don't think that this is like a big problem that writes out the existence of all indigenous national anarchist group because they're desiring the state. They don't yet have one. So it's not like I think that it's this major danger now, although I do think that all those criticisms apply to like American nationalism or most forms of nationalism that currently exist. But I think it would be a problem in the future once they if they got the goals that they want and that that should be gently critiqued. Another thing I want to say in this in this space is that a lot of people think that the indigenous rights pride type sort of movement that I was describing earlier. It doesn't count as nationality until they account for a sort of national sovereignty or sovereignty in some rich sense. And to me, it depends on what, how they unpack, how they see that right to sovereignty being enacted. Um, if they see it being enacted by a state, then I begin to get question. If they see it enacted by special rights and recognitions from an existing state, well, then it depends on what the content of those political demands are. So like Quebec nationalists, the Quebecois, for example, demanded uh, special language rights and started mandating that everyone in Quebec speak French. And they started deliberately changing the sorts of language 
evolution that they would have that were permitted to promote a sense of Quebecois French as distinct from Metropole French or English in Canada. So, like, I'm not sure how common this specific use, but I know there was an effort to use the word, like, telephone intelligent instead of smartphone. Smartphone is what the Metropolitan French say. Um, so, like, stuff like that, I think, is taking it a step too far. I think that shows a uh, desire to rationally construct and control, control culture in ways that I think are both impossible and undesirable. But if the demands are things like the state should get out of the way of us practicing our traditional things, it should stop, for an example, having uh, one major issue in indigenous nationalism is using eminent domain to take national land so that we can drill for oil or something ridiculous like that. If it's demands for like the state getting out of our way so that we can build our own, again, I'm using we as if I'm part of the movement when I'm not because I'm not indigenous. So I apologize, but you get the, you get the idea. Demands that the state get out of our way so that we can live our lives and have our own culture uh, that we have sovereign control over and maybe a sense of recognition for past wrongs committed both by the state and by the colonizers, uh, then I'm completely on board. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that and that that is a movement that should be supported. So it, it just depends on exactly what the demands of the movement are. I do want to say for a minute that secession is not something I want to entirely rule out. It could be the case that in an area where a certain group, ethnic group, for example, has a majority, they should... It would be better for them to secede simply because and form their own state, simply because they need to form a state given current political conditions, even as a, an nth possible solution. And the state that they formed would be significantly less oppressive than the state they're all part of. Like uh, Palestine comes to mind with Israel as an example of that. The problem comes when they think of the new state as something that is like owned as the Palestinian state or the indigenous state or the national state that we have, and then they cultivate a sense of identity surrounding it. Um, so I don't want to rule out secession as like a policy change to end form, to try to get out of the thumb of an even worse state. But I do want to say that uh, it should be viewed as just that, a policy change, not a new way of forming a political state identity. Mm -hmm. And I do want to say that if there are indigenous people in the audience and you think that there's something wrong about what I said, feel free to Tell me where you think I went wrong, and I'll, I'll take your input seriously, because this is something I'm beginning to think more about. Well, I was wondering if you could expand on sort of secessionist movements in general. I mean, do you think do you think they are compatible and uh, desirable as an anarchist strategy? Again, depending on the reasons for it, and depending on how um, uh, moderate the goals that they want to accomplish are. There needs to be very strong demands for it, like very strong reason for it. Like, for an example, the existing state is a deeply racist state that's going after a group and enforcing an apartheid state, like in, in Israel, again, for example. I think similar things might be said if uh, the Modi government in India continues what it's doing uh, about Kashmir, although I, you, you also would need to balance a situation like that with the fact that, like, Pakistan has nuclear weapons and so does India, and that's a disputed territory. So, like, it, it depends on all sorts of factors like that. But what I what I would want to rule out in the secessionist movement is a sense that the resulting state is the ideal thing that they're aiming for mm -hmm. in trying to form a new identity around the resulting state. I think that once you unite personal identity and statehood, things get very, very bad very, very quickly. People face insufficient ability to critique the state because it feels like their personal identity is what's being critiqued, for example people begin to have this sense of false consciousness that the state is legitimate when it in fact is not. 
and then they develop a sense of Stockholm syndrome in the way they relate to the state. So if it's viewed as just this like way of bettering the current political situation, not as the ideal end state or as an expression of some collective will or identity, then I think it, it's fine. Um, but most secessionist movements are not that way. We are doing this episode as a as a crossover. I'd like to move on to talking a little bit about your experience at C4SS, if you want. Okay. How long have you been involved with C4SS, and why were you initially attracted to the organization? Yeah, so it hasn't been that long, actually. I think I first heard of C4SS circa 2014-15-ish, when I was going through this phase where I was I was trying to figure out exactly what my political politics was. And at the time, I was sort of a right-wing, boring, boring minarchist libertarian, very normie-ish. I got into ANCAP stuff for about five minutes, essentially three months. I never went through a Rothbard phase in that era. When I was more ancap I was more like a Hayekian anarchist in the mold of like Pete Leeson or Peter Stringham or someone like that. I was dissatisfied with the way ANCAPs were overly, at the time I was much more consequentialist, were overly deontological, and I was dissatisfied with the way that they just failed to recognize the ways that existing capitalism was inconsistent. And so I came across markets, not capitalism, and that got me interested in C4SS. I was sort of on the periphery. I never really did anything directly with them until 2017. They invited me to, because I had written on democracy at that point, to do some stuff for their mutual exchange on democracy. No, that was not 2017. I feel like that was 2016. You'll have to check. At the time I was busy, so I didn't really, I didn't contribute to that. Um, but that was the first time that I was kind of invited into their orbit. Um, and then I, I just kind of was sort of like would interact with people who were in C4SS in various places, like, you know, Nathan Goodman and uh, Cory Massimino and Jason were, and I were all friends. And I would occasionally get in discussions with like Will Gillis or whatever. Um, but then it wasn't until fall 2018 when they approached me and asked me to do the podcast. And I was like, I'm not sure I'm graduating from undergrad. I'm busy right now. Give me a week to think about it. I thought about it and I was like, you know, screw it. This is a good opportunity to, if nothing else, to learn from a bunch of interesting people who I interview. Um, so I, I said, sure. I think originally Jason was briefly asked if he wanted to do it. Jason Lee Bias again. But he was starting a PhD program at the time, so he uh, didn't have time. And <laughs> it, it's definitely hard to balance being in a grad program with having a podcast. Yeah, totally. I would like to release more episodes more often and have more interaction with like patrons and stuff than we than we have. But I just can't do that because of grad school, right? <laughs> sure. Ever since then, I did an interview with Gary Chartier. Then the podcast got started, and that's really most of what I've done. I've written one or I think I've written like one actual article for C4SS on political violence or something, but I'm going to start writing for them more probably. It, it's also difficult because you want to save like your best writing as an academic for like conference papers and future publication. So it's hard to balance like what do I want to like write for a org like C4SS? What do I want to say for a blog post? I don't really blog anymore because I don't like interacting with uh, the mob on the internet a whole lot. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's hard to balance like those considerations like because you're writing for your career and the things that help you in your academic career are not like C4SS publications. It's like conference presentations at the APA or 
getting published in journals. But I, I want to write some more for things that I definitely couldn't publish in journals, given my background and stuff. So like mutual exchanges, I think, are, are where I'm going with it. Oh, my God. You know, like it's it's difficult enough trying to make these things happen. A lot of work goes into it. And there's always pra- there's always practical issues, too. Mm-hmm. For instance, at this moment, a drum line just started playing in the distance. And I can't edit that out. I don't know if anyone can hear that or if you can hear that, but it is it's loud. <laughs> if it starts raining, you're going to hear the rain. That's happened in past podcasts with me before. Right. Other than navigating grad school and that taking up the majority of your time, what what are some of the practical difficulties that you've had to get over in order to make it work? Well, yeah, when I lived in Ann Arbor, it was funny because I was in like a small apartment in downtown downtown. So like I would regularly have to like pause the conversation as an ambulance, a bunch of ambulances. And the firehouse was like a block away from me. So like... <laughs> There's a bunch of, and the hospital was less than a mile away in the other direction. So I would constantly just be like having to pause the conversation because there would be a bunch of sirens going off outside my window. And I was only on the second floor of that of that building. So I would say that the, the hardest difficulty has to do with just sort of like political nonsense that happens surrounding the podcast. Not surrounding the podcast, but just surrounding things that happen on Twitter or nonsense. I hate Twitter with every fiber of my being. <laughs> Why? Oh, you, you say that. I know you say that in your bio, but what's what's the problem with it? Oh, it's just like, first of all, you can't have a nuanced, interesting conversation in 140 characters. You just heard <laughs> 240 now, I guess. You just can't. Like, it turns into this unreadable thread monster stuff where people are responding to parts before the entire thread is done or they're not reading the whole thread or a part of the thread will get retweeted out of context so it just encourages like this level of tribal gross engagement where people are just constantly trying to gotcha with each other or they're taking jokes that are very obvious jokes way too seriously or they're just sort of like retweeting something to their group to say, hey, look at this dumb thing that this person in the out group said. I, I just think it's terrible. And then that leads to like weird bullshit disputes around personality that fracture and get in the way of things. So like sometimes that will like get in the way where there will be a guest I really want on, but then they will fight with someone vaguely affiliated with C4SS. And then I have to like, do all this behind the scenes work to get them comfortable with it. I don't want to get too far into like the details about when that has happened. So it's been like, there's just a bunch of like random HR things that I did not expect to come across in managing a podcast. There's a reason I have my like Twitter protected and I like never post there other than retweeting random stuff. So and half of it is hockey related, not even politics, because I, I don't want that to get in the way of the work I do on the podcast. And I see for a lot of people, it often does. I would say another thing that is very difficult is balancing like the background work you have to do for the podcast with time management. Like when I had Gary Chartier on, he basically sent me the manuscript of his entire book uh, <laughs> that he hadn't released yet. And... Uh, <laughs> A forthcoming article he had. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could talk about this here. Read a book first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there have been a couple of times where I think that was the most extreme case. And at the time, I, w- I was in my last semester in undergrad. And I was like, OK, so now I need to balance, you know, getting through this ridiculous meta ethics reading this week with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> this entire manuscript of the book. And I'm glad I did it. I mean, he, he put me in the acknowledgments of it, which was, I think, a bit generous because I, I didn't provide him a whole lot of feedback. That's <laughs> oh, very sweet. <laughs> Yeah. But um, 
And it's a very good book. I have I have my doubts about various moves he makes in it, but um, some episodes take a lot more work to prepare for than others. Sometimes it's just like I watch a documentary. Uh, I think Maggie McNeil's was that way. And so hour and then at boom, I have a whole bunch of questions about some topics. Sometimes it's read a freaking book. And then sometimes I know their per- I know the person's work well enough that I don't just from general generality. Like I feel like Roderick's episode was this way and Jason's episode was this way. I know the person well enough that I don't have to do too much work. Most of the time what it is is it's just like a couple papers or a couple articles that I have to read to get up to speed on the sorts of questions I want to ask. Like Nathan just sent me like two articles he wrote. So I mentioned it in the intro earlier, but C4SS is one of the only market-friendly anarchist organizations out there. Do you think we need more market-friendly anarchist organizations? Market-friendly, yeah. Explicitly market anarchist, I'm not sure. Huh. The thing about C4SS is that it's not so much an activist thing as a think tank. We're in the business of promoting ideas mostly, right? We do do activist projects. We do do like uh, raise money for this thing and stuff like that and help coordinate things sometimes. But mainly what we do is we publish books, articles, podcasts, blah, blah, blah. So that means that like having a sense of ideological starting point for what people can expect is important. And I don't think there needs to be more than one market anarchist thing doing that. C4SS is pretty big tent. We have everything from like mutualist anarchists without adjectives to people who identify as liberal anarchists to what have you. And then we invite in the mutual exchanges, various social anarchists and people of very rich backgrounds on. So maybe some like more specific, not so much think tanks, but media centers and websites that promote like the various particular flavors. I think having an explicitly mutualist org uh, promoting mutualism more directly would be might be good or one that one that does just like liberal anarchist or radical liberal stuff. But I, I don't think that's as important. I think we all benefit from those variety of perspectives at C4SS. Um, so I don't want to like balkanize and fraction off. But just having like a place, an ideological home for those things so that it feels like they're more of a thing to outsiders can be helpful. For activisty stuff, though, you don't need to have everyone agree on all the first order political philosophy stuff to get that off the ground. And oftentimes they benefit from starting like you meet up to do some info shop or you meet up to do some uh, activist direct action thing or some what have you. Sometimes you benefit from engaging in a common enterprise with someone from a very different intellectual tradition than you. Even even beyond just like agreement on like highly philosophical abstract things, like agreement on politics, like are you an individualist or social anarchist or whatever. So I think what is needed is not so much more explicitly market anarchist activist projects, although more agorism might be good, but more openness in anarchist spaces to having market anarchists in their midst without writing them off as closet ancaps or whatever, which is very commonly the case in certain anarchist circles, not all of them. One sort of misconception is this idea that market anarchism is some new thing mm-hmm. that like was just invented by Murray Rothbard and David Friedman in the 1960s or something. <laughs> Proudhon isn't an individualist anarchist, but he definitely had mar- a place for markets in his system. And right. you definitely had Lysander Spooner, correct me if I'm wrong, but he might have even predated or at least was contemporary with Proudhon. And then you had Voltaire McClare was an individual anarchist for a long time and Benjamin Tucker. Mm-hmm. It, it's a rich tradition going back to very roots of the anarchist movement. And I think that's underappreciated even by self-proclaimed market anarchists sometimes. Oh, yeah. 
pointing all that out, I think, will help bridge the gap where they exist to allow more more open spaces for market anarchists and anarchist spaces. But I think that's not my comparative advantage. Like, I am very, I'm a very terrible activist. I identify very strongly with like Chidi on uh, the Good Place, where as a philosopher, I get very frozen with the complexity of decision to the point that I can't make decisions <laughs> very quickly. So I, I'm I'm just not good at that. I'm very much an academic by inclination. So uh, I think uh, other people should be doing that work. I'm ill-suited to do it. Well, that's the whole point of stigmergy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why did C4SS find it necessary to start a podcast? So you, you'll have to ask like the people who made the decision to hire me why they did that. <laughs> <laughs> but my sense is that podcasts enable a sense of sort of openness and experimentalism and discussion without writing people off in a way that like writing a blog post or an article doesn't. Like once you've written something, they're like, this is what you think. This is like your Bible, right? <laughs> Maybe that's not how most people think of it, but there is a sense that I get out of that. Whereas on a podcast, you can come on and like ask a question about someone up to me about indigenous anarchism, a thing that I'm still sort of working through and I'm not 100 percent sure. And there's a sense of comfort with the fact that the audience will understand you and read you charitably. And there's something about the format of hearing someone's voice that enables that sort of charity. I think that's one reason why why I think that it's good that the center has a podcast, whether I'm hosting it or not, because it enables our the people around it to have that sort of discussion. One thing I really try hard to do on the podcast is I try hard to ask the sorts of questions someone who is not at the center or not in anarchism even would ask. Uh, I try to like represent like the normie liberal critiques quite a bit, even though I don't agree with them, because I think it's important for there to be a place where there are people with our views responding to those in an open and honest way, not just like writing it in an article that will likely be looked over or glossed over or something. So, I mean, one dream I have is to have people who do not share the center's views, and we've begun to do this a bit, have people who do not agree with the center's views on for more open discussions. Uh, there are a couple guests who I have in the long-term plans who I would like to do that with. What's one of your most favorite episodes on the Mutual Exchange Radio? It seems like the episodes I like are not the episodes most people like. I, I can't say I have a favorite now. I really liked Gary's episode. I really liked Gillis's episode. And I really like Roderick's and Jason's episodes. And I've been told by a lot of people that they didn't like the Gary and Roderick episodes in particular. Hmm. Not because they didn't like those guests, but just because they felt like the conversation was too philosophically abstract. Hmm. But like, that's the stuff that I live for. I live for the deeply probing the ideas and challenging things uh, like that. Probably because, you know, I'm an academic philosopher. Um, yeah, yeah. And note that most of those favorite episodes were things with the other academic philosophers at C4SS. It's just, it's the water that, it's the types of conversations I feel the most comfortable ha having. And it's the types of conversations that feel like I'm doing more than just like promoting the guest's work. That's all important. I, I love those episodes. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones where it feels like it's helping contribute to my thought and my future like writings and stuff. More than just like doing the interview because the person has interesting work that I want to highlight. Yeah. Uh, which, again, needs to happen. But that's what I enjoy about those episodes. Yeah, cool. One of the things that I'm I'm always struggling with is, you know, to what extent is like propaganda like this important? Yeah. And I think it's important insofar as it is inspiring people to act and to actually try to build a better world now, you know? 
So I'm not sure. I, I don't at this stage of where we are in politics and stuff, I am less concerned about that simply because I look out at the short term and I'm very pessimistic about the capacity of action to do much um, and the capacity of political movements to accomplish much. And this puts me at odds with most people, I think, uh, that that sense of pessimism. I think right now, I don't think of what I'm doing as propaganda in any way. I think of it as encouraging reflection and encouraging sort of ideological movement defining in a more important way. Since, like, for an example, the the traditional right libertarian movement sort of collapsed and blew up uh, largely because it turned out most of the people in it were fascists and not libertarians or whatever. It's a time for people who came out of that moment to sit back and reflect and think for a while about what we really believe and what we really want to accomplish. And also, I feel similar things could be said about anarchists more generally, given that our options and like spaces are limited. The best we can do is take action to stop bad things from happening and to correct bad things when they do happen, like what some of the direct action against ICE does, for example. And then for the most part, just pause and reflect and think about what sort of movement we want to build and how we should in detail think about our views. And I'm, that's what I view all the work I do is helping to facilitate that conversation and that thought and that reflection, not necessarily just like, yeah, I have I have people like Maggie McNeil on so that we can discuss a policy issue that action can be done about. And I think that's important. And you'll notice that, like, when I have those people on, I'm oftentimes pushing against them from broader philosophical perspectives. Like, I think I asked Maggie a Marxist feminist question at one point, because I think that in order for a political movement to be intelligent, its principles should be, like, thought through first. Like, action is important and all that, but I just think we're so far from a world where that's making a lot of difference that I want to do the first work. Like, we're like 600 years away from a society I'd want to live in. Interesting. Okay. You know, I think this might come down to like a time preference thing also. Maybe. I agree with you insofar as like our, obviously our actions, they're shaped by our ideas. But there's an interesting thing about action that if you build a very good alternative, then people can engage in anarchism without ever being convinced of it. And I don't want to discourage that, by the way. If people don't have patience or don't have the comparative advantage in doing philosophy or whatever... You should be doing that stuff if you want. What I feel like is that it's just I'm I'm pessimistic about that transforming society in the fundamentally fundamental ways that it ought to be transformed in the near future. I think that's all good. And what it would mean to do all that would be just small everyday actions or small transformations and the discrete little ways we can like that Pat the Bunny song from here to Utopia. I'm not saying we can change the world because everyone does at least a little bit of that. I think all that does do that. I just I'm skeptical about it as a movement proper, political movement proper as a voice in the mainstream or whatever. I think we're a long ways away from that. But I could be wrong. If people think I'm wrong, I hope I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list a series of people or ideas and have my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? Uh, sure. Carl Schmidt. Intriguing fascist who should be read and engaged with, probably the deepest critic of liberalism ever, and he's also very deeply cursed. Equality of authority. Very obvious moral truth to me. Okay. Nietzsche. Oh, I can't do this in a minute. Come on. 
Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm making you Twitter post. Deeply influential over me for a variety of reasons. His criticism of Christianity and genealogy, I think, are must-read history of Western philosophy stuff. He had very flawed thoughts, too. He obviously denied the equality of authority fundamentally. His talk of higher and lower people I, I strikes me as a liberal and problematic. But he's a freaking joy to read. Um, he has a lot of important thoughts uh, and a lot of problematic thoughts, too, including, like, sexism and stuff like that. Be very careful reading him. He's very easy to misread. Uh, and don't trust any scholarship on him prior to like 1960 when he was read as like a Nazi. Public choice theory. Very influential over my thought. I think it forms the foundation of one of the theoretical foundation of one of the biggest critiques anarchists should have of the state, which is it's that um, uh, state actors don't act in the public interest, they act in their own self interest. People should study it. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Kierkegaard. It's been a long time since I read him, so my thoughts might be off, um, but I fundamentally agree with Camus' critique of him that he commits philosophical suicide by just embracing religion in the face of the absurd. Populism. Uh, the Dunning-Kruger of politics. <laughs> Decision theory. Uh, I have it listed in my CV as a research interest area, so a lot of thoughts here, but... <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, the belief desire model is probably or the standard model of like probability decision making and so much and so on as a normative theory is probably correct. Uh, how how do you answer that? How do you just respond to like a topic like that in one minute? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the point. <laughs> that's what makes these lightning rounds fun, anyways. Causal decision theory is correct. Bayesian probability and updating is probably the correct theory about how you should form your your beliefs and yeah that's it how sure are you of that I, I i'll admit i'm biased because first of all i have an like an econ background and i think that a lot of that's, give me a percentage <laughs> i see the joke a lot of that stuff is sort of integral to like mainstream economic choice theory and also the the professor i did most of the studying with that on that was james joyce at university of michigan who's sort of the main defender of those views so I might be biased, but um, I would probably say that my credence is somewhere in the neighborhood of 85%. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Leo Strauss. Oh, um, I don't know much about him proper, but I know quite a bit about the type of people he's influenced. And I'm my first inclination is to be quite skeptical. The esoteric reading strikes me as oftentimes like weird conspiracy theory for intellectual history. Um, even though it's sometimes correct that uh, I think political esotericism happened quite a bit, especially early in the Enlightenment. The whole approach to like natural rights strikes me as just table pounding and not very interesting argumentation. And then the West Coast Straussians, like the Jaffites and the people at Hillsdale I used to run with, are deeply cursed. And a lot of that scholarship is very shoddy, in my opinion. Okay, I've got three listener questions, and then we'll move to the end of the interview. Okay. The first one is one that I ask almost every guest. How can I get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? Not much different from how you'd get one now. <laughs> um, you'd probably go to a coffee shop. It probably wouldn't be Starbucks, both because Starbucks coffee is very gross. <laughs> and any any just society will have significantly better taste in coffee than Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> but it probably would be you just go to a locally owned or maybe small franchise shop and buy one. Hopefully the means are ethically sourced because there's a good yellow journalist movement or political movement, labor movement for coffee pickers. Okay. The second listener question is, what are the best means to effectively expand liberal culture in our society without the state? 
liberal culture here, meaning uh, like a culture of openness and a culture that focuses on reducing cruelty and all stuff like that. I would imagine, yes. Yeah, I think markets do a lot of that work. Uh, Not all of it, obviously, through some of the mechanisms I was talking about earlier. I think being genuinely nice and open to difference in the way you interact with people in your everyday life Valuing diversity not just as like an abstract uh, concept, but as a way of engagement with people is an important way to do that. Um, This is an interesting question. I would say some of the like ideological work I do is helpful, but probably not the sort of thing that you're thinking of. Honestly, paradoxically, one of the best ways to do it is to try to get people out of their normal political engagement where they're oftentimes primed to be tribally polarized in various ways and treat each other very illiberally, talk to people more as individuals in various ways. So I I think it's just sort of everyday engagement stuff that you do in the way you interact with people in the public sphere, and then sort of allowing the institutions that have historically helped promote uh, liberalism outside the state to foster are some of the good ways to do it. Okay. The same listener asks, do you think liberal society is the ideal form to be maintained into perpetuity? So again, if, if by liberal society we mean a society of openness mm-hmm. and a society of uh, diversity, a society that makes some sort of principled distinction between what is the business of the public and what is not the business of the public, all that stuff, uh, and a society that systemically thinks cruelty is the worst thing we can do and tries to address it. If all that is what is meant by liberalism, it's never really been enacted. <laughs> like, yeah, in theory, I think that is the best sort of society we should be acting for. But when I look through like the history of what gets called liberalism, like Judith Squire says in her Liberalism of Fear article, I see a weird mixture of nationalism, of all sorts of very illiberal impulses, romanticism and all that stuff. That makes me think, what exactly, why are we dignifying status quo institutions with the thing liberal? And sure, like liberal values have grown. There has been moral progress made and like race and human rights and slavery is gone and all that. I don't want to undermine all that. To answer that question fully, I would need to understand what it means to say have a liberal society. I definitely think that like the Francis Fukuyama idea that what we had in the 90s was the end of history. He clearly no longer believes it. And I don't think anyone should have ever believed that. So we should be striving towards an increasingly liberal society. What that means means it probably won't stay in stasis and perpetuity at all. Other than C4SS and Mutual Exchange Radio, what resources should folks check out in order to learn more about your political and philosophical interests? Oh, first of all, Mutual Exchange Radio is probably not a good way to learn about me because I try to put myself aside for that interview. I'm trying to like and in doing the interview, I'm trying to think what sort of things would I want to be what I want to hear at this person asked. I'm not trying to put myself often. Sometimes I do, but for the most part, I'm not. So if you want to learn about my views, see Mutual Exchange Radio. Yeah, I'm interviewing a lot of people who are influential over me, but it's not directly what I'm thinking. To learn about things that have influenced me is probably the best way because I haven't published a whole lot uh, outside of some of the things we've talked about here. But uh, read a lot of F.A. Hayek. Um, he's one of my one of the biggest influences over my over my thinking. Uh, I disagree with him a lot. All the people I'm going to list, I disagree with a lot. Read a bunch of F.A. Hayek, uh, read a lot of Richard Rorty. Again, a lot to hate there. He defends nationalism in ways that I think are gross. But he's one of the thinkers who's deeply influential over me. 
For my like political interests, I would say focus on things in the analytical anarchist economics research program at places like GMU. Nathan Goodman's research is often like that. Uh, Chris Coyne, uh, Pete Stringham, Pete Leeson all do good work in that space. I would also say you should look at, again, a lot that I think could be questioned there, but it's a good way to get a handle on things that have influenced me. I would say a lot of Roderick Long's stuff has also been influential over me, especially recently. Okay, well, that's going to transition very cleanly into the next question, which, by the way, I completely took from your podcast. Oh. (laughs) And that is, um, what three books might you suggest others read? Yeah, it's funny you turn this on me because every time I uh, ask my guests this, they hate it. Um, uh, The other day when I was on... I was in a Facebook group. Someone asked me this question as a joke. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I actually stole it from Ezra Klein. It's not original to me. So three books. Whew. Um, National Economic Planning, What is Left by Don Lavoie. It's a criticism of various forms of non-comprehensive planning, but it's one of my favorite books on economics, period. Uh, he has a very interesting appendix where he compares uh, the way the market proceeds to the way knowledge is acquired in uh, scientific progress, drawing on a lot of philosophy of science. That's intriguing. And in some of the last chapters, he gestures towards a form of radical leftism that is post-central planning that I think is very good. Uh, another book that I would recommend... It's a very cliche choice for people to, for, at C4SS to recommend, but Markets Not Capitalism has a lot of good essays in there that were influential over my politics. And then for a good philosophy, to get a sense of what influences me in philosophy, that really has nothing to do with my politics. In fact, I think his politics are oftentimes very wrong. There's this collection of essays excerpts from books and so on by Richard Rorty that was very influential over me. Who edited it? I want to say Chris Forprell and Richard Bernstein were the editors. I could be wrong about that, but it's called The Rorty Reader. Um, You could probably find it on Amazon. He's a thinker who has a lot of influence over me. Again, a lot I disagree with in him and a lot that I used to endorse that I no longer do in like the epistemology space. But um, very interesting thinker who has deeply colored my views. Okay. Zachary Woodman, thank you so much. Everyone needs to check out Mutual Exchange Radio. Everyone needs to subscribe and consider supporting through Patreon. Uh, Zachary, I can't thank you enough for joining me. I can't wait to interview you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed my interview with Zachary Woodman. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe on YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like the work we do at Non-Serbian Media, please consider helping us pay the bills by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Media. And if you can't help financially, consider sharing this episode with others. This not only helps us out, but also allows liberatory ideas to reach a larger audience. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.